Well, I have a surprise for you. After looking at the contents of the remaining of the New Testament uh, books that we have to cover, Titus, Philemon, uh, the rest of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Mark, uh, and also the need to, uh, to re-record Romans uh, because it was a bad recording when we did it a number of years ago. Um, we are going to cover the last four books that, uh, in, in meat. And we are going to cover Romans beginning today. So uh, I hope that didn't throw you off if you were expecting to get into Titus and Philemon today. But we're going to cover Romans. We're going to do the introduction now and get into it. It's uh, going to take us about 65 weeks, which is uh, short. I mean, it took us, uh, that's about a year and two months. It took us two and a half years to do Revelation, but... It's going to be worth it. And uh, those of you who are on the boat now, we're just leaving the dock. Uh, you will learn the gospel and you will learn what Christianity is through the book of Romans. And uh, it is considered difficult in many areas and things like that. But I've taught through it once. We can teach through it again. We're going to simplify the difficult concepts. And uh, I'd encourage you to bring uh, open your word to it if you want. And I pray that the Spirit of God will attend us as we uh, try to get to an understandable, applicable understanding of Romans. See, that's the point. If, if it's not applicable to your life, then what the heck does it matter? It's got to have some bearing in who you are as a human being. So I'll try my best to incorporate an overall biblical perspective to our examination of the content so uh, we won't find ourselves guilty of assuming a whole bunch of stuff based on one scripture. We'll look at the, the general uh, august view of scripture in trying to understand the book of Romans. For many people, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans is considered the most difficult in the New Testament. Now, I don't know if those people have ever read the book of Revelation, but there's no comparison. Nevertheless, it's probably up there and uh, I think 2 Corinthians is very difficult. And I think that Hebrews, of course, can come with some trouble. But Romans is interesting. The way it's written, uh, difficult. Uh, it's so difficult that unfortunately, many churches, they don't cover Romans or Revelation in their Sunday schools. They just skip over it because they don't think people can understand what it means and they don't want to get into a deep discussion. And I think we can alleviate a lot of that by taking our time and trying to see what Paul means relative to other plain and clear passages of Scripture. The epistle or the letter to the Romans was written to Christians who were residing in the city or in the vicinity of the city of Rome. Where's Rome? It's in Italy. So right now we have some context. This was, these were believers in the Roman Empire, in the capital of the Roman Empire, which was enormous, all right? And Paul's primary audience was, uh, of course, believers, but these believers consisted of a great deal of Jews and a good deal of Gentiles, all right? And so Rome, of course, was the center of the Roman Empire, and it was very diverse, in terms of its population. They had people from all over the, the, that part of the world who would come and live and exist in Rome. And so even back then it was diverse. You would have all kinds of religious people and all kinds of different people gathering together. And this is a nascent church, an early Christian movement. And so you're gonna have difficulties with people understanding what do we believe? What is this about? The Jews are going to say, we have the law, we have the prophets, we have our temple, we have the priesthood. And you got them saying that, and you have the Gentiles who come out of paganism, who are saying, we used to, you know, eat our neighbor's children for, for lunch, and now we're here coming into this, and you're saying we can't eat uh, shrimp? Come on. And so there's a whole bunch of problems with the diversity of the group. If you want to imagine if we filled this room full of different people from different parts of the world, even if they were Christians, we're going to have difficulties, right? So that's the kind of the setting of what's going on. In the first century AD, Rome had a population of a, over a million people, and that was in um, uh, a 10 square miles. 
So it was fairly populated. And of that population, Josephus says there was probably 50,000 Jews. So that was considered a lot of Jews to be non-Israel, non-Jerusalem, to be living in that part of the world. The Jewish population originates back to the time in the second century during the diaspora, and, and uh, it occurred at that time. The term diaspora, biblically, it means, biblically it means the dispersing of Jews to places outside of Israel. And Jews call it the di- our first diaspora, when we were taken as a people and we were kicked out of our own land and spread throughout the world. And, uh, and so, but diaspora can refer to anything. In, in Southern California, back when I was a kid, there was a diaspora in Vietnam and we had the boat people who experienced the diaspora. They were pu- pushed out of uh, Vietnam and they came to uh, uh, California and other places around the world. So uh, anytime you're kicked out of your own land, that's part of a diaspora. Uh, Pompey the Great, he overran Judea and he sent a large number of Jews to Rome and uh, he sold them as slaves. And as typical with the Jewish people, they couldn't be controlled in terms of their will. They were going to keep their Sabbath day. And uh, again, the Sabbath day is from a Friday night to a Saturday night. And this Sunday Sabbath day stuff is baloney. So the Jews were going to keep their Sabbath day and uh and their dietary laws and that caused them to be automatically different even though they were slaves in rome and so uh they got so sick of them in their ways being imposed upon the community that they moved them across the tiber river there's a river called the tiber there i've never been there but and they said you can have this vicinity so, of course, when you take a, a, a culture and you put them in a specific part of, a, of an area, uh, that culture is going to thrive. And they started doing what the Jews do. They built up the area. They made it nicer. They, they propagated with uh, their inhabitants. And Josephus mentions that there were 4,000 Jews that were banished from Rome later on during the time of uh, uh, they were banished to Sardinia. And so we can see that, that they grew you know, and they, they, uh, they started to take over, in a sense. Um, many of them were punished, according to Josephus' antiquities, because they wouldn't become soldiers for the Roman uh, Empire. Philo says that many of the Jews at Rome obtained their freedom. They became free citizens. And he says, uh, being made captive in war, that they were brought to, into Italy, and they were set at liberty by their masters, and they were not at that point compelled to change their beliefs or their practices. So we have Jews in Rome. That's what that's all that was to say. There were Jews there. And then we have something happen in Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost. Jesus had come. He said to his apostles, go and wait for me at at, uh, Jerusalem. And and I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit the day of Pentecost, 3,000 Jews had gathered from all over that, that world to participate in the Jewish high holidays. And so they've gathered there. And Peter stands before them and the Holy Spirit falls upon uh, those 3,000 souls and maybe more or less. And, and they became converted. And then after the high holidays, those guys all went back out to their home countries. And it is believed that when they went back, some of them went to Rome. And so the Jewish population received Christianity by and through the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit falling on those people who were centralized in Jerusalem at that time for the high holidays. God is so interesting how he gets things done, you know, in his ways to spread the gospel. And so this probably planted the gospel in the hearts of some of the Jews in that area. We don't know how the gospel got to Rome. Uh, Our Catholic friends say that Peter was the first pope of Rome, that Peter went to Rome and he established the Roman church there. And we're going to talk about that, but there's no evidence of that. To me, it's just it's just make believe stuff to give some sort of papal uh, line from the pope down to the present pope of authority. And so they said Peter was the first, uh, but, but we don't have any evidence of that at all. And we'll talk about that in a second. 
But then, uh, of course, Rome is filled with a diverse population, and many of them are Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, and meaning at that time pagans. In all probability, they worshipped in all probability some sort of a pagan god. And uh, so uh, the church at Rome was organically created. I think, and I can't prove this, many scholars agree with this, though, that it started with the Jews and the diaspora being sent there and, and establishing Jewish believers there. And then day of Pentecost, some of them taking the gospel back to that land and then a synagogue turning into a church. And then the, the gospel going out to the Gentiles and they got news that the Gentiles could have it. So pagans coming into it and the church at Rome begins to grow. And it's easy to see that in a group of this, uh, these diverse capacities, there would be difficulties and arguments. We've talked about Nero here in Milk and how in 64 AD, um, there was a large fire in Rome and Nero used that fire to rid Rome of the established Jewish community at that time and uh, also to persecute Christians and to blame the fire on the uh, Jews and the Christians, whether they were Jews or converted Jews, Nero blamed the fire on them. And it's not sure uh, how the church at Rome uh, actually began, but I stick with the, the, um, the uh, day of Pentecost theory because I think it makes as much sense as anything else. In any case, there was an established church at Rome before Paul ever got there. And, and uh, the fact that all roads, that line, all roads lead to Rome, that's referring to what's called the Pax Romana when Rome really did have roads that led to it and it made getting to Rome very and leaving Rome very easy. And so it was during this time that the gospel came and was sent forth and was able to spread as, as beautifully and quickly as it did even amidst Nero and his reign of terror. A number of scholars believe that uh, foreigners came to Rome uh, because they were drawn to the diversity of it and they were also drawn to this Christian church that was growing among the many different peoples. We'll read in Romans 16 that Paul greets a number of people. He'll greet them, that's the last chapter, and he'll talk about a couple of them, Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla are a couple in the Christian faith uh, during New Testament times who were very important in serving the body at that time. And both of them were in Rome about 49 AD, Aquila and Priscilla, before Paul ever goes there. And according to uh, Acts chapter 18, 19, uh, when Claudius expelled the Jews from the city, Aquila and Priscilla were expelled with them. And then they, Paul met that couple uh, in Corinth at around 51 AD. So they had already been to Rome. Then in Corinth, they are expelled from Rome. And then Paul meets them in Corinth and they become acquainted and they work together in the gospel. And then they carried out more ministry to Ephesus, according to Acts 18:19, uh, And then around 53 AD, two years later, it's believed they went back to Rome, Aquila and Priscilla. So Paul could have been acquainted with the church and what was going on there through them. And it's highly likely that they were the ones who helped establish uh, at least some of the church. And the reason we can say that is because um, I don't think they established the church there, but they had a house church of their own, which Paul will mention in Romans chapter 16, that Aquila and Priscilla had their own little house gathering in Rome. That does not mean that all the believers in Rome met there. That would be impossible because the house church, unless they lived in a palace the size of a stadium, uh, but you know they, they had a church there in Rome. There were probably many churches there. And this letter was written to the many churches that were at Rome. Uh, uh, in Rome. So at chapter 16, we're going to read about uh, Priscilla and Aquila, just jumping ahead. Of course, outside the limited Jewish population of Rome, there were the predominance of Gentiles. Based on verse 6 and 7 of chapter 1, these external factors that I just mentioned are believed to be really important to the content of what Paul is going to write to them. And uh, because he speaks in part to the Jews and he speaks in part to the Gentiles. And we have both uh, 
both being addressed by the Apostle Paul. That's salad dressing, you know, oil and vinegar right there. You got to shake it up to get them to mix. And so in part, Paul shakes them up. He shakes the Jews up for their preconceptions about who they are and what they are. He, he certifies who they are according to the law and being a chosen people. But he also mixes them up with the Gentiles and says, but look, these guys are adopted in. They now are adopted. And uh, many of you may or may not know, but when you believe, now you become a child of Abraham. You become a, a true Israel. You become a member of the house of Israel through belief. You're adopted into that house by faith. And uh, so where before it was by blood, that if you were born a Jew, um, you were God's elect nation, right? But what happened afterward because of Christ, it, Paul says, and he'll later say in Romans, and we'll read this, that not all who are Israel are Israel. That it's those who are truly Israel are those who have, those who have faith. So uh, this notion of the Jews being the chosen people still and all of that, done away with in Christ. And what happened is the world was embraced as welcome into the house of Israel by adoption through faith. And we're going to cover a lot of that when we get into the later chapters. So uh, at verse one, the letter itself claims uh, Pauline authorship. And there has not been very much controversy over that, relatively speaking. Uh, the early church tradition affirms that Paul was the writer. Norman Geisler, who's a biblical scholar, I think he passed away, uh, used to read some of his stuff. The, uh, he says that uh, Paul is endorsed as the author by Clement of Rome, Polycarp, the Didache, um, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, and Origen. Uh, he goes on and says that Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Cyril of Egypt, Eusebius and Jerome, and Augustine all say in their writings, Paul is the author. And uh, apostolic authorship is important when you're considering a book because if it doesn't have the apostolic authorship, then it is considered non-inspired and therefore shouldn't be in scripture. And there's a number of books of scripture that are questioned as to their apostolic scholarship. Uh, the book of James was one that Martin Luther did not want at all. Uh, Hebrews is one that was questioned greatly, and so was the book of Revelation. All the way up until the 1830s, they wondered, should these books even be in our Bible because of apostolic authorship? But when it comes to the uh, letter to the Romans, there's not much question at all. It was from Paul, probably because he put his little signature at the bottom of it, what, or stamp, or whatever it was that said, this is from me. As a quick refresher, and I think it's really important to remember, and I, and I just want to say this, without the Old Testament, um, we would never understand the purpose and place of Yeshua, Jesus. And people don't really understand that, that that Old Testament is what tells us who this Messiah was going to be, where he came from, and often what he was going to do. You had to have the Old Testament. If Jesus just popped up out of nowhere with no historical basis at all, uh, like we have from the Old Testament, we would have just some guy claiming to be something that, that uh, we didn't, wouldn't even know what it was in context. So the Old Testament is really important. If you want to understand Christ and Christianity, you got to read the Old Testament. And, uh, and so it's vital to the faith. Um, add into that, that we have the Old Testament, then we have Jesus come and he's talked about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? The Gospels. And then we have Acts, a historical record, and then we start right in with Romans. If we didn't have Paul, we would not, how to in, we would not know how to incorporate the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John into our lives as Gentiles. We would have no idea we would, we would say this was a Jewish guy who, who believed in God and was God or, and he followed the law and he said this, be perfect, and he said that. And, and we wouldn't know how it fits. And so um, we wouldn't know how the Messiah of a Jewish world would fit into the lives of Gentiles from a non-Jewish world. 
And so Paul authored uh, some 13 books of the New Testament. And some people uh, say, well, I trust the New Testament, but I don't trust the old. Okay. I've heard of this recently. And, and some say that the words of Jesus are all they need. You know, so we have some people say, I'll do the New Testament, but not the old. Some say, I just want the words of Jesus. And some say, I don't want the words of Paul at all. I don't like Paul. They'll take the Old Testament and Paul, and they'll think that they can understand and relate to and know who Yeshua is in the context of just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's a serious mistake for your growth as a Christian. And, and um, so while his words ultimately, Jesus' words ultimately run down the mountain to us Gentiles at the bottom, Paul is the sand and rocks of which that water flows that purifies that for us as Gentiles. His words pure to the Jews atop, but down at the base, we need it filtered so that we understand what it means to us. We were never given the law. We didn't, no, God never told us to obey a Sabbath day or to dress this way or not to eat that. He never said that to any other nation but the Jews. And so if you just try to take those things that were written to Jews, you will have a very difficult time. And um, it's kind of like trying to cross the sea in a wooden rowboat and pulling out two planks from the side of it uh, that expose you to the open water. I mean, you're going to sink when it comes to understanding who Christ was, what he did, and how it applies to you as a Gentile in this world. So um, this is really largely the issue with the LDS, by the way, just to let you know, is they will focus on the Old Testament abundantly. You know, they have an Old Testament view of the law and they still live by that, right? And, uh, and they'll take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they'll say, we read the Bible and we study that. But when it comes to the Pauline epistles, they, don't, they, don't, they, gloss, they, they gloss over them. And so they read what Jesus says, they read what the Old Testament says, but they never really come to understand how all of that flows down to a Gentile. And so they have a very Old Testament way of seeing everything. And, uh, and it's justified by the fact that they don't read Paul. They won't consider him as really as viable as they should. So um, Paul was born an Israelite in Tarsus. And I know you know all this of uh, Cilicia. And uh, he was called Saul. Uh, that's his given Jewish Hebrew name, Saul. And he studied under Gamaliel in uh, Jerusalem. And he became a Pharisee. So we know what the Pharisees were. They knew the law. They knew Paul was no slacker. This guy had the best of everything relative to the Old Testament, and he knew what it was all about, right? So he was no slacker when it came to knowledge of the Jewish traditions. He was a Pharisee. So he was really quite a uh, religious jerk. So much so, he was at the death of stoning death of Stephen. He held the coats while they stoned the first Christian martyr. And he also went about and he persecuted Christians. He thought, you guys are following a false god. I'm going to persecute you. Have you thrown in prison, put to death, whatever uh, that included. And so he is walking along a road to Damascus, uh, to Damascus. And he has a vision and he hears a voice or sees a light. And we talked all about that in Acts. And his life is radically changed. And he goes to the Sinai Peninsula for 13 years and he's trained and taught by Jesus himself on what he needs to do. From the time Paul has his vision on that road walking to when he becomes an apostle, is, is, there's a lot of years in there. And he was trained, taught everything that he needed to know in order to take the gospel from the Old Testament to the uh, gospel setting and move it into the lives of non-Jews. That was his purpose. And he was sent to go out to the non-Jews. And that's what he's doing here. He's writing a letter, an epistle, to the Christians, that can, a church that consists of Jews, and of course, then Gentiles, who are part of his ministry. Um, he uh, uh, was martyred by Nero, by the way, Paul. 
um, and they, I can't remember how, what tradition says, how, what his death was. Like maybe some of you remember, I don't. Uh, he had a problem with his eyesight and many people believe that the thorn in his side was eyesight. And so he will say in different places that he writes with a large hand, meaning his letters are really big because uh, paper and, and papyrus and vellum and all that stuff was, if they had vellum, there was a really limited supply. They would write really small because, you know, you don't have enough surface. Well, he wrote large because his eyesight was bad. And he, he, uh, he had bad eyes and he would uh, uh, go around and uh, be helped by people because of that. But he says he prayed three times to remove the thorn in his side, which many people say was his sight. I don't know that it was. It could have been some moral problem. And God's response was, my grace is sufficient for you. That's why I think it could have been some moral issue rather than just a physical one. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. Stop asking me to fix this because I'm not going to do it. Uh, most agree that the dating of this letter is about 56 AD, which was 14 years before the destruction of Jerusalem. Paul himself identifies the recipients of the letter, and he says at verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So, if you're a biblical literalist, and I always point this out when we start with a new letter, if you take the Bible literally, right, then you have to admit this letter was not written to you. Because Paul says in the letter, to all in Rome, who are loved of God and called to be saints. So people say, you got to take the Bible literally, and it says this, and this is what it means. I say to them, if that's the case, then the, uh, the, the letter to the Romans is not written to you. It's written to other people. Because that's what the Bible says, right? And, um, of course, I believe that the letter has proven to be a great blessing to us. And you don't take the Bible literally in many places, but you take it in context with why it was written and when it was written. And so you read a line like that and you say, yeah, it was written to them. So I have to be careful on how I take what it says. There might be things in that that are cultural. There might be things in that that are surrounding that time that don't necessarily have an application to me. However, I think it's a gift. I think it was inspired when he wrote it. And I think the value of it theologically and doctrinally to us as believers is so important, you can't escape that. Nevertheless, he wrote it to them. And you have to couch your study of Scripture in context. Who was it written to? Why was it written to them? What was going on then? And can you abstract that information and assign it to yourself? Principles we can, but literalism will create all sorts of insanity for people. And it has throughout the course of religious history. So Paul's intent was for the Christians of Rome and all the different churches to read the epistle. We don't have instructions of him saying, and have this go copied and taken out to the church at Ephesus or Corinth. We don't see that in there. So that's what we have to go by. And we know that there were too many believers in Rome for them all to fit into one small church. So we know that the, church, that the letter had to be replicated and sent out. So he's writing to a church he's never visited. A straight-up casual reading of the epistle, if we just read through it, doesn't convey the idea that he's dealing with any situational problem present in the church. If you just read it, it looks like it's just doctrine, really. But uh, you, you begin to see, if you look at the components of the Rome, church at Rome, who it was made by and what was going on with everybody then, as the pressures on Christians was so great that there had to have been divisions. And when you look at the content that he specifically talks about in this, in this book, you realize he's addressing specific problems by explaining the doctrinal basis for his comments. Uh, and he appears to have been writing the general description, the big picture on the doctrine of soteriology. And that's a big theo theological word for how you're saved. It's a, it's a treatise on how you're saved. 
And, um, and when we say saved, that means two things in the New Testament. It means saved from coming destruction. It means saved from sin, from death, to the kingdom of God or not. So we, we'll talk about that as we go on. But this is a soteriological book. How are we saved? Paul doesn't just answer that with one word. He gives us the whole historical background of the law. And he brings the Jews in in the early chapters and he describes what was going on with them in order for us Gentiles to ultimately understand the part we play in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He seems to write to help people how to know Christ and he also informs them of the future that he will have with them um, as, a, as an apostle. When he's going to come to them and everything else, that's, that's minor. At the time of writing the epistle, Paul was about to take an offering. The, the Jews in Jerusalem who had converted to Christ were starving to death. It's not like um, we take up a collection for somebody who's laid on one of the payments on their house. It's they, the Jews in Jerusalem, were so persecuted, they were excommunicated, they couldn't have jobs, they couldn't have fellowship, and Paul took up a collection among all the churches in Asia Minor, and he was going to take that collection of money and food or whatever it was and bring it to the starving believers in Jerusalem. Outside of Jerusalem, being a Christian was not as bad. So that was specifically for them. And he intended to go to Rome after he delivered that gathering of goods to go to the saints in Jerusalem. And uh, it is thought that Romans was a carefully planned doctrinal presentation of the Christian faith, but the letter is missing. You're going to notice, probably thankfully, that Christ doesn't talk about eschatology at all in this book. <laughs> so we, we don't have, he doesn't even touch on end times, really. And he doesn't talk on uh, Christology. He doesn't talk on ecclesiology, which is, these are all the, uh, theological terms. Ecclesiology is church government. He doesn't talk about bishops and pastors and deacons and all that stuff. None of that's there. And, uh, and uh, communion isn't mentioned. There's a lot of things he doesn't talk about, and that gives us a clue to what he talks about being uh, related to what was happening there. Uh, there's a professor of theology named Walt Russell. He's at Liberty University, not an endorsement or rejection of uh, by my mentioning him, but he says that Romans is uh, a letter of exhortation that treated the issue of Jewish-Gentile relationships and that Paul was urging them to participate fully in God's harvest of all people. Participate fully in God's harvest of all people. And he seems to think, think as a professor that that is the main thrust of the epistle. I tend to side with that view more than the others that are out there. All that said, the greatest and most evident theme of the epistle is the gospel. The gospel. The good news. That is the theme talked about in the book of Romans indirectly, but it's talked about more in Romans than anywhere else. The gospel. It's in the very first verse, Paul states that he was called to be an apostle uh, for the gospel's sake. For the gospel's sake. Eight verses later, he maintains that he was dedicated to Christ and his gospel. Uh, and that he preached it with his whole heart. The gospel is also portrayed in verse 16 of chapter 1 as the power of God unto salvation. The power of God unto salvation. That line right there, I mean, is really quite fascinating. That the good news is the power of God to salvation for human beings. That says a lot about the import of the gospel. The good news, that it's the power of God unto the salvation for human beings. Um, and, uh, and then he says... Uh, of course, to those who believe, the Jew first and also for the Greek. Uh, believe the good news. Do you believe, have faith in the gospel, the good news? And what is the gospel? It's, it's articulated in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1 
uh, or 15. I can't remember which. Uh, which one is it, Justin? 15, 1 through 4. 15, 1 through 4. The gospel is articulated by Paul. And you know what? It doesn't say anything about baptism. It doesn't say anything about communion. It doesn't say anything about eschatology. It doesn't say anything. He, he, Paul describes the gospel as Christ coming, living, dying, resurrecting. That's the gospel. Paul says, I didn't baptize because I focused on the gospel, showing that baptism wasn't even part of it. That the gospel, the good news, is Christ, God's only son, came, lived, died, resurrected, believe on him unto eternal life. That's the good news. That's it. And so uh, believe the good news. We're going to read in chapter 10 how Paul admits that this gospel was not accepted by all of his brethren, the Israelites. That um, they, they couldn't get over the fact that their righteousness has to be part of the good news. And he, are t he explains this really well. And he says, I, I, my heart is for the Jews, my brethren. But they go about to establish their own righteousness, not knowing the righteousness of God. Meaning that it is by and through the righteousness of God and faith on him that we are saved. And he had to overcome that for them. And my, my heart for the LDS is the same. I'm not saying that the LDS can't be believers and aren't saved and all that. I'm simply saying my heart breaks over them that they don't understand the righteousness of God and they go about to establish their own righteousness. And that is impossible, according to Paul. Your own righteousness, he says, or scripture says, are nothing but filthy rags. Your good works are nothing to God. He wants faith on his son. That's what he wants. Straight up, simple, nothing more. Believe on his son. You walk around in your life and you believe on his son. You have the good news, received it, and you have the power of God unto salvation. The power of God unto salvation. Believe on his son. If you haven't made that ascent in your heart, go to God. This is, this is, a, uh, this is a call. This is an altar call I'm doing here at campus. Go to God and say, I receive your son by faith. And that is the power of God in your life to salvation. That's what it says. So powerful stuff, this gospel. Um, also in the first chapter, verse 17, we're going to read how God's righteousness is being revealed in this gospel. He says, from faith to faith. So again, the gospel's touched on in Romans. Paul will certainly make it clear that the only way God's righteousness can be accessed, listen, the only way you can tap into God's righteousness which is what you have to have to have it imputed to you to be righteous to him, your own righteousness is nothing, is through faith. Human beings can never make themselves righteous. You can't do it, according to everything we're going to read. Nor will a single ounce of merit do anything with regard to your salvation, which is supported by passages like Ephesians chapter 2. And that is so antithetical to the human mind. We live in a meritorious society. You want to make your boss happy? You do better. You want to make mom and dad happy? You do the things they like and they and they're smile more and they give you more liberties or whatever parents do, right? We earn our place in this world through our merits. That's a natural way this world works. That's not how it works with God. That's not the good news in the way it's received. It's received by you saying, I believe your son lived a life I could not live, did what I could not do, and he did it all. It was finished. I place my faith on him. That is good news. That is the faith, and we are saved by his grace through that faith. So people mix that up because in our world, merit is important, you know, but in God's economy, it's not the merit. It is the faith. And that's why we gather together to study the word, because through the word, our faith increases and we're trying to increase our faith. Right. So uh, Paul admits right off the bat that those who are deemed righteous are those who live by faith. And you can find in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the I mean, that is what it's all about. Faith. Right. So let me stop here and I just have to make another uh, declaration, a statement. Christians live and walk by faith. 
we sang at the beginning, I, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the I think that's what we sang. Uh, I am not ashamed. No, I am not ashamed. No, I am not ashamed. No, I am not ashamed. Repeats it three times. Not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God into salvation for everyone who believes. Not ashamed for faith. We live in a world where our greatest, some of our greatest minds, they mock faith. They criticize it, YouTube and online and everything. Faith, oh, you believe and all that. Uh, I'm not talking about bad faith. I'm talking about faith, good faith based on reasonable thought, articulated analysis of the word faith. And uh, we really don't know much of anything. We trust in the promises of God. That's faith. God says, believe on my son, you will be saved. That's faith. I, we grow in faith and the knowledge of God. Uh, we receive them all by faith. Not ashamed of faith at all. Uh, any man or any woman of faith, I honor well above uh, anybody else in all the skills, art, uh, fame, money, power. A person of faith is held in my highest esteem personally because in this world, that's a decision that you make. And we forget that. We don't have all the answers. We cannot intellectualize things before the critics. And we cannot make sense of everything that we have before us. We try, but by gosh, it's tough. So we walk by faith. It's a choice. And I don't see any reason to make an excuse for it. And, and I've said this before because it was a profound moment. I'm sitting with two atheists on a radio show and, and, and the, the conversation was shut down when in our back and forth, I said, I, I, we walk by faith. What, 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 what do you want to say? We walk by faith. Well, what about what? About what? I believe. I believe. You know, you can, you can mock that. You can not like that. You can disagree with that. But I believe when I look at creation, I see a hand, a hand of God who made it. You see no originator. Okay, you believe that, I believe what I believe. What do you want? We're done. And we really were done because Christians should not be embarrassed by their faith. Why? Because scripture says that is what pleases God. I don't know why in his creations. It must have to do with free will and our willingness amidst this world to decide to believe on something we don't see. But it says you cannot please God but by faith. And so I think if God holds that up as people pleasing him through faith, faith must be immeasurably important in the uh, relationship between God and human beings. So don't ever feel bad about being a person of faith. Uh, stand strongly for your faith. That's what all the prophets and apostles and, and the Lord had, has, have done in the past. God loves his creations, but he particularly rejoices over those who walk by faith. And we know, we'll learn from Romans, that it is by hearing of the word that faith increases. Faith does not come by sitting on a mountaintop, legs crossed, looking at the sun. Faith does not come by... Uh, listening to great Christian music, if that's what you're about. Faith comes by hearing the word by the Spirit and you deciding, I will believe that, I will not believe that. And there's some things I don't believe that are in the scripture relative to us. There's many things I do. You make that decision yourself and you're responsible for it, right? So faith, so vitally important. And it is in this epistle that Paul shows why it is necessary that your salvation is predicated on faith, not works. And that's why I think many churches ignore talking about it because it emphasizes that very thing that they can't provide, which is your salvation, which comes by faith, right? They can provide works and they can provide things you're supposed to do and they can provide this theory and that doctrine, but they cannot provide what Christ gives. 
So they seem to ignore it. Do, and this is where the Old Testament comes in, it becomes important in Paul's letter. The faith is vital to believers and it's due to sin. That's the connection he's going to make for us, is that the human race has sin. We have sin. That's part of our fallen nature. So God comes up with the way to save us in our sin. Remember, it's not our righteousness that we're saved by. So it's not our, not get, it's not our getting rid of sin that we're saved by. It's by being sinners that acquiesce to God and say, I believe on your son. And Romans will unfold this for us in the only way Paul can. And he'll explain why this is. That the only system of salvation is salvation by grace through faith. It is not works. And he will prove time and time again through the epistle that your works will amount to nothing when it comes to saving you to, uh, before the living God. So uh, it's probably summarized by Paul in, in chapter 6. Chunk that's specifically talking to Jews. And again, people who say, I don't even like the Old Testament, I don't want it. We have Paul who's going to be borrowing from the Old Testament greatly to establish the content of this epistle in, 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 uh, to the Romans. So um, very important. Uh, by the way, um, regarding this appeal, uh, the early church fathers uh, all support the idea or deny the idea that Peter was ever in Rome. I'm just giving you backdrop stuff so that we can get into the text. But they deny that Peter was ever there. And I just say that in case you are of the opinion that uh, anciently Peter was the first pope and he be, led the Catholic Church into a papacy of a line of authority that forever exists. Um, it really seems to be a fiction. All right. Um, it goes without saying that the book of uh, Romans is most theologically uh, driven of all of Paul's letters and has played an instrumental role in the church uh, movement throughout the ages. All that being said, there's no better way to comprehend a book than to read it. So let's step to the top of the 10 meter board, get to the edge of it and dive into the book of Romans. Romans 1.1, Paul a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. All right, back to verse one. <laughs> I'm glad you caught that, Steve. Thank you for finding my humor. Uh, good. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Hello, Jeff. First word. Paul. Uh, the name Saul was Hebrew. The name Paul was Roman. And in addressing the epistle of the Romans, he was naturally make use of the name um, Paul. And there was an ancient custom to begin a letter with your name. We end our letters with sincerely Sean McCraney. Well, back anciently, they started their letters off. This is from Sean McCraney, right? And they did that to show authority. So I have the authority for writing this. My name is Paul. And so he starts off Paul, an apostle, right? Uh, and we see this practice often in the Old Testament letters that we read. Paul, he says, a servant, a servant. Now, it was customary for the title, uh, uh, for the apostles to use the title servant. Jesus, when he was with the apostles, the original 12, he told them to consider themselves servants and to call themselves servants, doulos. Um, interestingly, the Greek term means slave. It means a slave, uh, one who is not free, not free. And we, of course, come to one of the most fascinating things that I can uh, personally witness to, the most one of the most fascinating things about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That being a Christian grants the individual the utmost liberty they can find in their life by choosing to be in bondage 
to someone else. And it's a concept that's so paradoxical, people don't like it. I don't want to be a slave to Jesus. I don't want to be in bondage to anything. They think that's freedom. They think that's liberty. But it's not. And true emancipation comes by and through Christ Jesus, your faith in, your faith upon him. Uh, I've tried the counterfeits. I've tried most of them in my life uh, to find freedom and that promise freedom. But all, all of them end up enslaving you. I, I don't care what it is, if it's an ideology or if it's a philosophy or if it's a drug or if it's another person or if it's a church, they all enslave. Um, Christ expects you to willingly be his slave. That's why he tells his apostles, call yourself a doulos, a slave, a servant. But it's only by a willing submission to the person of Christ that a human being can become paradoxically liberated and free. Really free. Freedom is so important to me as a human being. I mean, I think it's at the top of God's list of important things. And um, the reality of the paradox lies in the fact that he emancipates, he liberates us, one, from our sin. If, when you come to faith in him, you know the sin is gone. Past, present, future is gone. And from the trappings of your flesh over time, he liberates you from those over time by faith. And he gives those who seek and are willing the ability to love. And it's in the ability to love with agape love that we are set free. Christ giving us the ability to love unconditionally all people all the time liberates you. We, we lose that in this life. We think it's other things that liberate us, but it's agape love, and that is had best by and through His Spirit, the Spirit of God, Christ, which is love, right? So you want to be free from anger? Then you love. If you judge people all the time, that's non-loving, and you're a prisoner. Christ says don't judge them. That means don't condemn them. Less you condemn, the more free you become. The less you do anything of the flesh, the more liberated you are. And so the less you focus on self, and the more you actually love others first, the more free you become. Liberty in Christ. You want to be put in bondage? Walk out of this room, go somewhere and see someone that bothers you and let them get under your skin and choose to, to have feelings or anger or hate for them instead of selflessness and compassion and mercy and non-judgment. And the minute you do, you've lost freedom. So the most prejudiced person in the world is the most bound. In Christ, where he teaches us how to live and view and walk the life, the less bound you are. And you can be emancipated from all of that stuff in and through him alone. <laughs> Jeff is giving me commentary as I, <laughs> as I talk. Uh, that's okay. You're free to do that, brother. Uh, ultimate liberator. Ultimate. Cannot beat it. Uh, I'll challenge you on any of it. You think something else will bring you more freedom? Bring it, right? The paradox is that you willingly become a bondservant. You willingly become a servant to Christ. And, uh, but the most devoted and dedicated we allow ourselves to be, the, the more we are, the more liberated we paradoxically become. And I could talk for hours on this because it's such a favorite of mine. Uh, but Paul begins the letter right out of the gates by taking the position of authority and then saying, I'm a servant of Christ. And an apostle by acknowledging Christ as his master with him as the bondservant. We know that in days of old in the Old Testament that when a person decided that the, they would be a slave or a person wanted to be committed to a certain master for the rest of their life, they would put their ear on the doorpost and they would take a steel awl and put it on the ear and drive it through. 
and that would give them that mark of that they belong to that certain master and that bond servant idea carries through with us as Christ pierces our hearts and we become owned by him, run by him. Uh, so if your mother sends you to the store, you're an apostle. That's, that's the true meaning of the word. She sent you, someone sent. That's the Greek meaning. But an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ is very different because they were not only appointed by Christ, they were sent by Christ, they were trained by Christ, and they were witnesses of the resurrected Christ. Those yokels up on North Temple who call themselves apostles, they, those guys, they don't measure up to the biblical standard of what an apostle is. Not even close. In fact, they're in denial of what the standard is. So biblically speaking, those guys are, are, are just blowing it in terms of being apostles, you know. So Paul says, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Separated means with the idea of boundaries. I've been separated out to do what? To reach the Gentiles. That's the boundary I reach out in Asia Minor. I'm not an apostle in Jerusalem, even though I was once a Pharisee. You'd think that God would have him be working with Jews. He doesn't. He sends them out to the Gentiles to reach the, the, that surrounding area. In Galatians 1.15, Paul used the term, he says, God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. That means what I was born with in my blood, I was separated from. From my mother's womb, what I came out as, I was separated from by God and he called me to his grace which is what the book of Romans is going to be talking abundantly about. He said to Jeremiah, by the way, before I formed you in the belly, God says, I knew you. And before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified you and ordained you a prophet. And many people say, oh, you know, he was, Jeremiah existed before. That's not what it means. It just means God's all knowing. And he knows the people he's going to elect and choose and appoint and use and separate. And Paul was one of them. So uh, that speaks to that topic we had about election a few weeks ago. I sustain Paul as legitimate based on a number of factors. One, his writings and his understanding of the gospel relative to the law is absolutely stellar and unbelievable. Uh, two, his ability to speak the truth to varying audiences and give them insights uh, into what the gospel was about, uh, even though sometimes those in insights seem contradictory. His audience, he is able to adapt to that audience and speak to them. And then his sacrificial devotion. I see no reason why a devout Jew trained by Gamalelia, whatever his name was, and in the law, a Pharisee of Pharisees, born of the tribe of Benjamin, he had the, the road paved for him to be a great guy. It was like if you were raised in Utah and your last name was Benson, and you were raised up to the point where you could become an apostle of that church. He had it all lined up for him in every way, training, everything. And he has that experience on the road to Damascus and he turns. And what does he turn to? He's elected, he's appointed to suffering, extreme suffering and a death by Nero's hands in the end and being alone. You know, he didn't travel with the others. So there wasn't like this camaraderie. He was his own guy and he suffered for it. So uh, unto the gospel of God is what he says. In other words, he was to make his life about preaching, teaching, guiding, leading the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, one and the same, no biggie, whichever one you want to use. Verse two, and we'll wrap it up. Which he, God, that's who the he is, has promised a four by his prophets in the Holy Scripture. Second verse in Paul's writings, what does he allude to? The Old Testament. Which he, God, promised, meaning the gospel of Jesus Christ, before, the prophet, uh, before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So he affirms, he attests to the validity of the inspiration of the Old Testament. And based on the Old Testament, Paul says... Uh, they were called holy because they were inspired. It's, it's, they're the holy scriptures. They were inspired by God, worthy of reference. Uh, Paul here declares that he's not about to advance anything new. 
This stuff was inspired and talked about in the Holy Scriptures by the prophets of old. And he affirms that all of it was before promised by God. No small amount of this epistle is going to be devoted to it. He will appeal to the Old Testament to prove his points to his primarily his Jewish audience when he's speaking to them. And so we're going to be borrowing from that Old Testament. I got to admit right here something that many people don't realize. It's absolutely a biblical fact. This is why Bart Ehrman has a platform to attack criti uh, and criticize Christianity today. But Paul takes a liberty that disturbs some people. Paul will take a passage from the Old Testament and he'll apply it in the New Testament and it will have absolutely no connection to what it meant in the Old Testament. Okay? So you would think if he's going to borrow a scripture from the Old Testament to support something he's saying in the New, that what that scripture meant in the Old uh, contextually should mean the same thing of what he's using it for in the New. <laughs> Not Paul. He will take a passage that says... Uh, I don't know what, honor your father and mother, he doesn't do this, and he'll apply it to something else in the New Testament entirely. And that, if you study your scripture, that will uproot you for a time because you'll be like, what's he doing? First of all, we know he knows the scripture. He was a Jew of Jews. He knows it. By the Spirit, when he writes, he's using the Old Testament context to support an argument he wants to make to the church at that time. And he takes great liberty in doing it. So what our, our, critic, our critics today say is, Paul, he borrows from this passage from the Old Testament that's talking about the destruction of Idumea, and he uses it to, to encourage saints to continue to press forward. It's insane how he's borrowing and using the Old Testament passages to his advantage. He doesn't make an excuse for it, ever. And in fact, sometimes what he does, he even changes the way the scripture is written in either Hebrew or Greek in the Old Testament, and he assigns it words in the New Testament that aren't there in either a description. He paraphrases in essence, and he uses it to his advantage. I frankly love it. I think it's hysterical. I think it shows that he has a great mind, and he's able to take concepts and principles from the Old Testament and use them to his advantage in the new to help explain something that he means. And it doesn't have to be on the nose in both places. I want to forewarn you of that when it comes to this because Paul does it. And to try to excuse it away through some rationalization that people have tried, it doesn't work. What people say is, oh, well, there's a translation that we don't know about that Paul was citing. No, we, we have the Greek and we have the Hebrew. It's not in either of those. He paraphrased. And he applies it differently. Uh, admit it. Agree with it. It would be like me taking something from my life that I studied in, uh, in Marxism and applying it to the church today. And I could paraphrase Marx and I'm assigning it to a discussion about the church today. And people could say, he's quoting Marx. He quotes it wrong and he uses it differently than how Marx... Love is a brother in Christ, even though you don't agree with him. I do love you. I do not agree with him. I want you to know that for sure. Uh, That's okay. But and I appreciate your talks. You talk. I can't talk like that. If I can't do it in five words, I won't. You know, I need to say it. You know what I mean? But uh, <laughs> what I, I let you preach, uh, speaking about it, what I would like more is the Bible. I'm I'm so tired with men and and you know. Uh, no, not 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 dissing Paul at all because of his uh, um, influence on the New Testament, practically written the whole Bible and stated. And I'm all for Paul, but uh, he's not God. He, he speaks for God as Scripture, but he's not God. Oh no, not at all. Right, but I want to run one of the Scripture got to say. Well, keep coming, because yeah. that's what we talk about. And you can disagree I, with me. I know you pinpoint a couple of verses out of, out of context. Oh, you stop it. Oh, man, I want to sit down. And I never it. speak out of context. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, you stop it. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, brother. I love you too, Sean. God right. bless you, brother. Thanks for coming. Is that it? All right, let's have a prayer. Do we have anybody on the list? Nope. 
Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful uh, for the love that Jeff extends and not agreeing, but loving. That's what we seek. Uh, we don't agree on, with, every, with each other on everything, and, uh, but we try to love, and that is the key. And so uh, be with us as we study this book of Romans. This opening was a little dry, but we're going to get into the text now, which is important, verse by verse. We pray your spirit will accompany us through our week. Whatever religious things we do, whatever family things or life things we are blessed to do, it's all great. We're so grateful for life. It's a gift, but we pray that our on that throne in our mind and heart will be you and that you will guide us and lead us and we'll learn and grow together. Uh, we pray for uh, people who are struggling in the faith, people who are struggling with their health, with loneliness, with disease, with sin and whatever else it is, all this stuff. We just pray, Lord, you'll make yourself known in their lives. You'll strengthen them and encourage them. In Jesus' name, amen.